Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with Dr. Theodora Ross. During our conversation, Theo talks about her career in medicine, her role as director of UT Southwestern's Cancer Genetics Program, and her new book, A Cancer in the Family, which is a personal and scientific story highlighting the latest science of cancer genetics. All right, Theo. Well, first of all, uh, I just wanted to say thank you uh, so much for taking some time, and it's good to have you on the exchange. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. My pleasure. Uh, I would love to start, as I generally do, with learning a little bit about your upbringing. You're now a doctor and an author and a scientist. Um, Was that always sort of your life trajectory? Did you grow up wanting to be a scientist and a doctor, or not necessarily? Uh, no, I don't think I did. Uh, I might have subconsciously, mm-hmm. but never, you know, plan on being any of that. Uh, by the time I was twelve, I think I wanted to be a concert violinist. <laughs> okay. And I actually went to music school at Indiana University. Mm-hmm. And after uh, realizing that I didn't have the talent one of my siblings had, I abruptly quit. Okay. And that was the first time I started to think about alternative careers. And then I got my first job, and this was in the 80s when there was a huge financial crash, Mm -hmm. and I got my first job at the Kalamazoo Public Library. Okay. I was a clerk. It was spectacular. It was the best job. Well, I can't say it was the best job. Currently, the best job I ever had is the Mm -hmm. one I have now, but it was a really great job where I checked out books at the Kalamazoo Public Library and dreamed of being Chekhov Mm. uh, and all that. And then I met a professor from Kalamazoo College Mm. who helped me figure out what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was go to college. So I went to college. Mm. And once I went to college, I realized I loved biology mm. and just understanding the human body. Did you know when, when you started studying, studying science and biology that you did have uh, kind of an aptitude for that that maybe wasn't there in the, in the musical world for you? Could you tell rather quickly that this, this might be for you? Uh, I did. Oh, well, I know I thought I was pretty retarded because I had <laughs> been in, you know, music school. In yeah. music school, you really don't do anything other than practice. Um, and so I was surprised when I did quite well in school. Mm. And when I did well, I thought, hmm, maybe I can survive in this field mm. and maybe I can do great. And, and after you started sort of delving into that line of, of subjects, did you think very quickly, you know, this is going to lead to lead to me being a doctor or more of a research scientist? What, what did you think? Was I originally wanted to go to medical school. And then I learned about these MD, PhD programs. And I learned that if you got into one of those, they gave you a free ride and a stipend. And I didn't think I could afford to go to medical school. Mm. And so I thought I'd apply to those. Mm. So I applied to those and got into some and went to Washington University in St. Louis. Mm. And when I started to do science, I still thought I was going to be mainly a doctor, but I really liked science. And when I started to get into research and doing my dissertation and working at the bench, I got the bug. Mm. And once you get the bug, you can't stop. Mm. And I'm stuck yeah. being a scientist. 
The the MD PhD. I mean, to me, that sounds like such a daunting task. What? How many years did you know you would probably uh, that would require for you to complete? You know, it's seven to eight to nine yeah. years. Uh, for me, it didn't matter. I wanted to stay in school as long as possible. I just yeah. loved it. I love learning. Yeah. Uh, you know, every time you learn something new, I feel like I've you know gotten to the top of a mountain. <laughs> just getting a concept, I think, is one of the greatest human activities we can. Do. Yeah, I know now, right? You you've recently published this this book and and are now uh, living in Texas. Um, what's the story of, of how you went from graduating from from Washington University to, to actually having your current job? I think at, at one point you were in in Michigan. Is that right? Went back. Well, to I Michigan. went from St. Louis to Boston okay. to, to do my internship, residency, and oncology fellowship, and then a postdoctoral uh, position. So I was in Boston. Uh, at Harvard for several years, from 93 to 99. Okay. More training. Yeah. Um, and at that point, so that was quite kind of a transition in terms of where my the story for the book came, mm-hmm. was when I got to Boston, uh, at that point my sister had had breast cancer in her 30s, and even though we'd had other cancers in the family, that was a big one. And when she died of it, that was like, wow. So that's when I decided I was going to become an oncologist. Okay. And then in the mid-90s, the genes that predisposed to breast and ovarian cancer mm. were discovered. Mm-hmm. That was exciting. Mm. I still was working on leukemia at the time, and uh, that's kind of where my basic science work was focused. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got my first job, I went to Michigan. Mm-hmm. And there... I wasn't doing genetics. I was just seeing breast cancer patients and running a basic science laboratory. Mm-hmm. So then when the opportunity to run a cancer genetics program came up in Texas at UT Southwestern, mm-hmm. it was something to grab. Mm. And so I moved 12 years later yeah. uh, to Dallas. Yeah. And, and that, one, of the, one of the fascinating things I think about your story and just your line of research that, that led me really wanting to talk to you is about just the, the progression of genetic information that we now have at our disposal that that are helping and i think that's one of the major themes of, of your book um to give people the proper treatment that they uh should have in in treating ailments um talk to me about sort of the the history of where we are now versus where we were 10 20 years ago in terms of um what we know about genes i mean uh when you were starting your your career were we basically totally in the dark about um, how genes can impact your predisposition for, for cancer and other problems or, uh, or not necessarily? Uh, no. So in the 60s, there were three people, uh, Henry T. Lynch mm-hmm. and uh, Dr. Lee and Dr. Fermini, who were looking at families and others, but these are the big top people, were looking at families that had clearly were cancer families. Mm-hmm. They had multiple generations of the same cancers running in the family at early ages. Mm-hmm. For Lynch, it's colon and other cancers, Lee and Fermini, multiple types of cancers. Mm. But at the time, in the 60s and the 70s, there were no genes that were known that were predisposing mm. these patients mm. to the diseases, so they just had the families. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the not late 80s, 90s, that these genes started to be discovered. Mm. And they've been multiplying with sequencing the genome. We've been mm. getting more and more of those. But it really was the genes were you know, found in the 90s, but we still didn't know what to do with them. So mm-hmm. your question's really good, this retrospective perspective. How long does it take you discover a gene to then know what to do with that information? Right. So in, in the 90s, people were saying, eh, if I don't want to learn this because I won't know what to do with it. Right. But in 2000, they started to have research studies coming out showing that if you had prophylactic surgeries, you could 
reduce your risk all the way down to that of the general population. Hmm. And colonoscopy, same kind of thing. If hmm. you have a gene that predisposes you to colon cancer, colonoscopies can prevent you prevent cancer and you have mm. a normal lifespan. And and for for a layman when you say that you know these genes were discovered, how does one go about discovering genes? At least in the in the 80s and 90s, I think people are familiar with with different methods for for uh, sequencing their genome now, but how, how was that done in the 80s and 90s? It, it's no different really? now as it was then. Yeah. And in fact, it might be more difficult now. It's very interesting. So mm. you have your family members who have cancer and your family members who don't have cancer. And you look at the differences in their genomes. Mm -hmm. And those with cancer have one thing, and those without cancer don't have that mm -hmm. one thing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in a BRCA family, they would have a BRCA mutation in the affected members that have cancer, mm -hmm. but not in the, old, in the older members who don't have cancer. Mm -hmm. And as sequencing the genomes become actually more complicated because mm -hmm. we have these families, and now we're sequencing their whole genomes, mm -hmm. and so we have a lot more to look at, and so there's a lot more smoke. Mm -hmm. And much of that smoke is not generated by fire, if you, if you know what mm -hmm. I mean. Mm -hmm. So it's always the same. You look at the genome either by, you know, now it's whole genome sequencing, and you try to find what is associated with that disease. Mm -hmm. And for people that are just now getting familiar with, with sequencing yes. genomes, the, the process by which a human being is able to do that, is yes. that always saliva-based? What, what's the mechanism it's by which they can Usually sequence? if you're going to do the whole genome or mm -hmm. an exome, you know, look at multiple genes. We have 20,000 genes in our mm -hmm. genome and lots of intervening sequences is a blood test. So mm -hmm. you usually we'll take blood, but you can take skin. You can spit into a tube and use saliva. Mm -hmm. um, any, any human cell. Mm -hmm. So the blood is your white blood cells. Mm -hmm. And, and the sequencing that was done in the 80s and 90s, like you said, it, it's a similar process. Is it just now the ability to really dig into the details of yes. that is just in the so past much more we would look at one gene we called yeah. Sanger sequencing. Sanger won the Nobel Prize for this, which is a method of sequencing that you know could only look at one gene. And even then, when you're looking at that gene, it was very labor intensive. Now we can you know, sequence by massively parallel sequencing multiple mm -hmm. sequences at the same time and get the whole genome. Mm -hmm. And I know in, in, in your book, you, you know, part of, part about science, part about research, but also part anecdote about your own personal story. And, and as you had mentioned, uh, your sister got breast cancer and died of it. And you have a, a family history of, of cancer in, in your personal family. Um, at the time when you were starting your career, was it just not commonplace for people to sequence their genome? Was it not recommended by doctors, or was it just too difficult to do it? It wasn't possible. Yeah. It wasn't possible in the 90s. There was no whole genome sequence. The first genome came out, I think, in 2001, full genome, mm -hmm. and that was you know a billion dollars. Now it's maybe two or three thousand dollars. It's mm. not really a thousand. And then the interpretation, people joke, is a million dollars. So, okay. So. And and for for people now that uh, this does seem to be more more of a, a topic that people are talking about uh, in terms of you know, getting unique medical diagnosis and, and getting treatment that's really relevant for your own personal genome. Um, what is your recommendation for young people, old people who uh, think that they? may be predisposed to, to cancerous genes, what, what can they do to, um, as sort of a step one, begin to learn information that may be useful to them in, in preventing ailments? Well, the first step, if you think it's an inherited disease, that you, you know, is to really get your family history, get an accurate family history. I think a lot of people know they don't really have an accurate family history, and there's a reason why they may need it, but they're mm -hmm. not sure why that is. Mm -hmm. But that is key, to know what you, what you have. You know, what, what do people have people had in your family? What mm -hmm. kind of heart disease? What kind of diabetes? You know, what kind of cancers? Mm -hmm. 
at what ages, and see if you can get accurate information from them. Mm. And once you get what you can get and you continue to do that, it's not an easy task. It's mm. something that you really have to work at because people talking about cancer or other diseases is difficult. Mm. But once you do that, then you can talk to a geneticist. You can talk to your doctor and say, you know, I, I think, look, see my family history. I think I'd like to see a genetic counselor or a, mm-hmm. a specialist in genetics. Mm. They'll then help you draw out that pedigree in a more complete way, fill mm-hmm. things in. They're amazing. So if you have mm-hmm. genetic counselors are rare, mm-hmm. uh, we need a lot more of them. But they will go to the ends of the earth to get your family history that's accurate. They'll go mm-hmm. to the doctors of your family members. They'll talk to your family members. They'll fill out that pedigree Mm. and then they'll help you decide what kind of test you need do you need to get an exome because you really do have a big uh, crazy unknown syndrome in your family and Mm. you need to be part of research Mm. or do you have a garden variety syndrome like von hippel lindau syndrome we can just test for that one gene because Mm. we're 99 percent sure your family has it and you may or may not be with that mutation or Mm. not and in terms of the the different types of cancer that that different people can get um, once that, let, let's say a genome is sequenced and, and you get the, the full genome or even partially part of the genome sequenced, um, are there certain types of cancer that uh, the information that is received from that process mm-hmm. is especially beneficial because of what we know about um, that particular type of cancer? And then are there others that it's still very difficult to discern what to do with that information once, once we have it? I I think what you said is correct, that some mutations do direct treatment Mm -hmm. if you have cancer. So BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations do sort of direct treatment if you already have cancer. We have a new drug, these new PARP inhibitors, Mm -hmm. Elaborib is FDA approved recently, um, that have some effect for BRCA1 mutants, and some of the different chemotherapies are used for those mutants Mm -hmm. that way. Others, you know, if you have a VHL mutation, you just want to be followed to make sure you don't have a pheochromocytoma so that if you do have one, you want to have it out, or Mm -hmm. you want to be followed for a kidney cancer, make sure we get that early. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are different management strategies. If you have a mutation in RET, which is a gene that uh, is actually activated when you have the mutation, you get medullary thyroid cancer. Mm -hmm. And depending on the mutation, we recommend taking out the thyroid. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of treatment, if you already have thyroid cancer, there's a, nr- a drug out there that will target the RET mutation. Hmm. Since, you, I think you said the, the first full human genome was sequenced in 2001, and now it's roughly 15 years later. Um, talk about just the improvements in um, the likelihood of, of improvement of diagnosis and also treatment for people that, are, that do have cancer. Is it uh, already significantly more likely that after people have this information that uh, they'll be treated more effectively or, or is this, there's still some time left to go before we really begin to, to nail this down? There's time left to go. Yeah. So these are all in, you know, still in uh, studies at this point to really determine whether sequencing the whole genome of a tumor or at least the exome of a tumor is any better than what we've done before. Mm-hmm. We have some very good targeted therapies for proteins like the EGF receptor, epidermal growth factor receptor, when it's mutant, and we have BRAF inhibitors. So we have some genes that when we sequence them in a tumor, Mm -hmm. we find out what drug to use, Mm -hmm. but it's a handful. So, and we can just sequence those. We don't need the whole genome. So the question is, and w- was, was whole genome sequencing the cause of those genes to be discovered? Well, we were looking at those before that happened. Hmm. 
in terms of the for people right that everyone at, at some point in their life may may be afflicted with, with some form of, of cancer um would it be your recommendation that from as a baseline rule for everyone at the age of for example 10 or 15 just by default get their genome sequence or is that uh, not necessarily something that you would encourage at this point definitely not something to encourage at this point because the information we don't know much about what the information means mm -hmm. for that person's life and especially at the age of 15 we don't even 10 or 15 we don't even look at BRCA1 or BRCA2 until a person is 18 mm -hmm. and even then that's a little bit early mm -hmm. to really know what choices are going to be made and things really change over 10 years mm. uh, getting everybody's genome and storing it somewhere and going back and looking at it still our sequencing technology is improving and improving and improving and so you may want to just get it resequenced get another mm -hmm. sequence in 10 years so it's really not time to do that mm -hmm. it may be part of the future mm -hmm. Uh, at this point, you don't get that much information from it. Okay. And if you're normal and healthy, just stay that way. Yeah. <laughs> is what what is the cost right now in in 2016 for for doing uh, a full sequencing of, of one's genome? Is it still tens or a thousand dollars, thousand dollars? What's the what's the price range? At this well, point? it depends on what you're getting. So mm -hmm. if you're in the laboratory, you can usually do a whole genome sequence now. Um, for a thousand dollars, but then you have to interpret that, and that's much more expensive mm -hmm. for a human being who does a whole genome and they want somebody to look at their whole genome. I don't know what that clinical cost is, but yeah, it's like ten thousand, fifteen thousand still. Okay, not much information there yet. No, as mentioned, the the book is both a part of uh, part of it is about your your research and and your journey through science, and then um, other sections of it are, are more personal. And, and I would love to talk about the. The moment, and I think you mentioned this right at the beginning of the book, when you and your husband discover that uh, that you have cancer. Um, kind of ironic, given your your choice of of, of study and your profession. Um, would love for you to just maybe explain or tell the story of of what happened to you and, and how you found out. Well, uh, it was actually quite a year. So we had been married uh, for almost a year mm. and almost made it through the first year of marriage. It's a tough one. And uh, it was a tough year. My father had come down with his last cancer, and so he had he was in the process of dying with hospice. And at the same time, I had discovered that a spot on my leg was melanoma, mm. which was weird. One of our friends, actually, we were at a dinner party, and I said to him, you know, you, can I have you look at this thing on my leg? And he looked at it, and he said, oh, I can take that off on Monday. And he said, I said, what do you think it is? I don't think it's anything. And it turned out to be a melanoma that didn't, it was amelanotic. Mm -hmm. So it, it was uh, an interesting one. So it turned out to be a melanoma. With that, I'd been having a back and forth conversation with my husband, who's a very good scientist, mm -hmm. uh, excellent scientist. And uh, he kept telling me, you really need to look into this genetics thing. Mm -hmm. And it, I argued with him probably because a couple years back, I had talked to a genetic counselor at a place where we had enrolled in a study in genetics, and they had told me, according to myself, that our problem was not clearly hereditary mm -hmm. uh, or not hereditary in my mind. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so we had this argument, but once the cancer occurred, I called up a friend of mine who's a geneticist. Her name is Karis Ng. She's one of the leaders in all of the early genetics. So in the 90s, these cancer genetics programs started to develop and build up, and she started one of the first ones at Ohio State University. Mm -hmm. So I called her up, and I said, you know, what do you think? Can I come by? And So we went, and, uh, and then once, I, you know, then I, so I was doing it just for hubby to mm -hmm. make him happy. Um, 
And then they said, well, let's test for BRCA1 and BRCA2 first uh, because your father is an Ashkenazi Jewish mm. individual. Mm. And he had all these cancers. Mm. And so uh, we tested and a couple weeks later heard that I had the BRCA1 mutation. Mm. And that moment of kind of clarity mm-hmm. was unbelievable. You went from uncertainty kind of somewhere sub, uh, in your subconscious or unconscious, <laughs> unconscious, uh, to understanding. Right. And it was the same as we were talking about at the beginning when you uh, learn a subject and all of a sudden you understand. It is exhilarating. Mm. And that was spectacular. And I thought I understood. I was like, okay, I understand. That shows you I must not. So, you know, we learned about that and went through the process of trying to figure out what to do. And at that point, there was a lot to do. Mm. So that was also exciting. And, uh, and then, uh, I started to tell the family. So I told, you know, my brothers and my mother and, um, and my uncle, who is my dad's brother, uncle Manny, mm-hmm. he's our family crier and, uh, Ashkenazi. And he, uh, you know, sobbing on the phone and, uh, because he has daughters and they were in their, you know, late thirties, early forties. And, um, and so he just, we got him a genetic counselor. Our genetic counselor, Heather Hample, you know, did all of this, man, tested everybody in the mm-hmm. family, mm-hmm. arranged for everything. I didn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got him a counselor. And then fast forward, you know, a couple weeks, we're visiting my mom, Grammy, and uh, she proceeds to tell us that the research place had taken her blood and had sent her a letter a couple of years back, mm. or and I'm not sure it was a couple of years. I may be getting that time mm. wrong, but you know, at least a year back, and uh, you know, said there was something, but she hadn't really paid attention. Mm. And at that point, we were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! This was supposed to be the Ashkenazi side of the family. The right. mutation we had was an Ashkenazi Jewish mutation. It's also a mutation in people who are Polish and Russian. So there's mm. some question about mm-hmm. who's, you know, Jewish." Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, then, you know, it became very clear that she was the one with the mutation. Hmm. Even though her family, her side of the family, to our knowledge, and this gets to the family secrets or Mm -hmm. lack of knowing your accurate family history, Mm -hmm. they didn't have cancers to our knowledge. Hmm. Anyway, so the next day, we, you know, my husband actually called. We were, when we were visiting her, it was a Sunday. He actually called the emergency room at the, well, he called the emergency, the line, there was like a, there's this letter, this form letter she got and he called the number and they, they sent it off to the emergency room and he got somebody in the emergency room and they're like, this is not a genetic emergency. Anyway, um, he, so on the next day I confirmed with them that they had known about this mutation hmm. and this mutation, if I had had ovarian cancer or something like that, so it really gives you the urgency of like, know your family history, get a genetic counselor to help you out, figure it out, because you could run into trouble. You could not meet that deadline of preventing Mm. your own cancer Mm -hmm. or your family member's cancer. Mm. But the knowledge and learning about it was best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. The the green light that you would give to people like yourself, it sounds like after after learning this information, that that it, it may have made sense for you to get um, to, to learn that information earlier, potentially. And um, to whom would you recommend that sort of a process to? Who, who should be getting tested? You mentioned if you have a, a family history of, of cancer, is it is it only cancer or, or just uh, consistent family ailments like heart disease, I think was one that you mentioned too. I think consistent family ailments. Mm-hmm. We are, I think there are a lot of hereditary syndromes that we don't know what they are. And mm-hmm. then there are a lot that we do know. 
And so if you have something that runs for your family, seeing a geneticist is the best thing you could do for yourself or your family and the future mm -hmm. of mankind mm -hmm. because we're all on the same family tree ultimately right. and we need to solve a lot of these problems. We're gene hunters. Most of the, the people with hereditary cancers that come to our clinic, not most, but a good proportion, we still don't know what their gene mutation is. But mm. we can see in their family that going through multiple generations in different places is not just environmental. Mm. And, and once, once it's determined that it, you, one may be at risk for having that sort of uh, genetic inheritance, um, and it's discovered that indeed that is the case, is the best process from there is the improvement just that you can go from that point forward and um, take proactive environmental decisions to re reduce the risk of, of death or, or serious uh, illness? What, what can be done once it's known by the individual that they are at risk? Well, the first thing is, is you can help the rest of your family. Mm -hmm. So you can find people who are not at risk. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. And then you can find those who are at risk. So that's really quick and easy. Mm -hmm. That's the immediate thing. In terms of whatever the disease is, yeah, it's either follow, you know, high surveillance to make sure you catch whatever problem you have early. In mm -hmm. this case, we're mm -hmm. talking cancer. Mm -hmm. So that would be the case if you're looking for a pheochromocytoma. It's not so much the case if you're looking for breast cancers to happen. We don't know if we find them early, whether that's really preventing okay. death from cancer. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on what the disease is. And, of course, if you have a heart syndrome, you probably don't want to play football, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You were mentioning earlier about genetic counselors, I think is the, mm -hmm. the, the profession, um, and how you think we, we need more more of them. Uh, I would love to get you. This is the first I've, I've heard of, of that uh, of that profession. What is the background of someone who mm -hmm. has that uh, who has that career, and and how many of them are there in the United States right now? Uh, I don't know how many there are. I'd have to get back to you on the number, but mm -hmm. it's not enough. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that uh, it's a definitely a supply and demand problem here. Mm -hmm. So the genetic counselors are people who have studied human genetics. Mm -hmm taking care of patients with genetic syndromes. They've been studying this for two years. Mm -hmm. uh, they're certified, they take boards, and they continue to have to educate themselves and stay up to date to remain licensed mm -hmm. or certified. There are some states that license, some states that certify. Uh, and there are at multiple hospitals. We have 10 genetic counselors at UT Southwestern just in cancer. Mm -hmm. I know we have in pediatrics probably about 10. Mm -hmm. We have genetic counselors for general human genetics as well. Mm -hmm. And then we have genetic specialists who are physicians who specialize in genetic mm -hmm. syndromes. Mm -hmm. But the genetic counselors know more about genetics than physicians do hmm. because physicians will, you know, have a couple rounds of genetics in their first two, two, first two years of medical school. They'll keep up to date, sort of, hmm. but they don't know the details of that. And so the physician will send you to a genetic counselor right. or a geneticist to have further evaluation. It's a great career and we need more of them and they're really smart. You know, I like to call them, they're like your financial counselor with a personality. And you wouldn't just give your money to a financial person without, you know, saying do something good with it. But on the other hand, you don't, what your financial counselor does, what they actually do is pretty complicated. Are they doctors? And, and if so, or if not, uh, what, what's the educational requirement that they have to have? I, I know you yeah. said they're, they're either certified or, yeah. or have to pass yeah. boards. What, what does they're one master's. need to do? A they're master's a master's degree. degree. Okay. So they are not physicians, They mm -hmm. but they, so they work with physicians. So I work with genetic counselors. Mm -hmm. 
So I will order the tests, but they'll tell me what tests to order. Mm. I fall back on them all the time. Mm. Every patient, I always consult with them and make sure uh, I understand what's going on. In fact, I wrote the book because I wanted to learn more and stay up to date and you know, not appear completely ignorant mm. when I'm around them. Mm. What, what it, during, that, during that research, and it, it, like you said, it sounds like that, that was part of the desire of writing the book. From, from those conversations, both in your professional work and in writing the book, were there things that you learned in speaking with them that uh, was stunning to you or that you found particularly interesting or the, the information that the public should, should know about? I think the one I keep coming back to, and I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but this idea that people know that their family history is accurate, this inability to get an accurate family history is quite shocking. Mm -hmm. In fact, even in my own family, no matter how much I looked, I would change my mind every time I talked to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So my Aunt Evie, did she have endometrial cancer or did she have ovarian cancer? I was always convinced she had ovarian cancer, but then I talked to my uncle Mm -hmm. and he said, no, it was endometrial cancer. You know, Mm -hmm. it it goes back and forth. So Mm -hmm. the accurate family history is a big one that is surprising. It's Mm -hmm. surprising how inaccurate they, there was a paper that came out sometime in probably 2011 from the National Cancer Institute saying that about 75% of people who report lung cancers in their family are Mm. inaccurate, Mm. that it wasn't lung cancer, that something had gone to the lung. Mm. And they'd figured that out because they interviewed the people in Connecticut, and then they looked at the Medicare records, they looked at the death records, they looked at them, and they tried to see how accurate it was, and Mm. it turned out to be very inaccurate. Mm. So I think that is very surprising to me that it's that high. Mm Uh, and that's been reproduced in other studies since. Mm-hmm. That was surprising. So the other surprising thing are the number of syndromes that continue to we continue to discover quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look in the back of the book, it's get it's pretty fat that mm-hmm. appendix, mm-hmm. and that's surprising how many syndromes there are. And uh, and then the other thing that's been quite surprising with whole genome sequencing are these new variations in the genome that we call variants of undetermined significance. So we have the, you've got a mutation, yes. You don't have a mutation, no. And then in between, the maybe, we call those variants of undetermined significance. Mm. And what's happened with that is that with sequencing the genome, we're getting a lot of those. And so one laboratory, Myriad Genetics, will say something's a variant of undetermined significance. We don't have enough data from families to tell us whether this is important or not, but most likely it's benign. Mm -hmm. Most likely it's going to be what we call polymorphism, just a normal spelling that we haven't seen much of before. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have another lab looking at the same variant, and they'll say that it's probably bad. Mm -hmm. And for two laboratories to not agree on that is extremely surprising, hmm. that our clinical laboratories are not able to interpret sequences hmm. has been a real shocker how often we're seeing that. Hmm. The other thing that's really interesting that we've seen is that a lot of the mutations that we called mutations in the past, now with more data, more sequencing data, and more human data connecting the dots, they're turning out not to be hmm. So we've got a lot of uh, shifting of the calls of hmm. whether or not interpreting our genome, just learning about that. It, is that something that you anticipate will get better over time? Is it, is it just a matter of us 
previously being more ignorant than we are now and that it will, it will get it's better. leading to better It will get better over time as long as we all recognize that we have a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that's key is everybody has to recognize that we need more clinical data. We need more people like genetic counselors we call it phenotyping, mm-hmm. you know, telling us what the patients have accurately and connecting that to the genome. Mm. And I think it will get better and it will sort out with time, but right now we don't want our patients in the crosshairs of that. Mm. I know you, you, you live in Dallas or work in, work in Dallas. Um, I'm wondering, is the, the sort of um, sort of revolutionary technology and, and capabilities that, that you work on, um, I'm imagining that centers like that that focus on uh, genes and genetic testing and have uh, genetic counselors are in most major American cities. Um, is that correct? And if it is, what about people who don't necessarily live close to a, uh, a major city? Or is your recommendation that uh, if they determine that they are potentially at risk, that you know they travel the two hours by car, six hours by car to go to one of these uh, institutions to get tested? Or to get it analyzed. Analyze. I mean, you really just no. have the courage to get a genetic analysis and then decide whether or not to be tested. Okay. Uh, yes, I mean, it's a really a one-time thing. In fact, the only reason I didn't go to the University of Michigan was because I was there, and that's why I went to Ohio State. Mm-hmm. But we drove several hours to go see, to get a genetic analysis and have mm-hmm. the courage to realize. I mean, they, a lot of people don't see that this genetic knowledge is an upside. They right. all think there's a downside to it, and, and there is. And so... Yes, every city has a nice genetics program, mm-hmm. and yes, driving a couple hours to go to that is a good idea. Mm-hmm. At UT Southwestern, we do some telemedicine. We mm-hmm. cover all of North Texas, mm-hmm. and so we will do telemedicine, but it's always better to sit in person mm-hmm. and talk and have a genetic counselor and your doctor there and mm-hmm. just kind of hash through what it all means and sure. be able to do that multiple times, by the way, yeah. over time. Yeah. And you said in terms of the process, is it the test first and then the analysis or it's the other way around? It's the other way around. Okay. They'll draw your pedigree. They'll go through your family history. They'll look at you and say, are you really sure this is ovarian cancer? Because ovarian cancer really in a family member that's linked to you mm-hmm. is a ticket to genetic testing. Okay. But usually that turns out to be cervical cancer. Okay. And so they'll okay. solve, yeah. they'll go through the whole family and they'll mm-hmm. you know try to get as much mm-hmm. of an accurate history as possible. Some of them, they'll, some counselors will verify it before they will even send a test. Okay. And then once the test is completed, that's when you go to the genetic counselor to do even more uh, analysis of, of the of those results. Yeah, it's back up. Okay. You'll, the genetic counselor will help you with your pedigree. Okay. So your genetic analysis, when they'll get that family history, you'll see the genetic counselor. Gotcha. Then they'll get the genet- the test. Mm-hmm. The test results come back. They'll either call you or have you come back and mm-hmm. you'll discuss the results of that. Usually if it's negative, they just Say, you know, you're okay. good for now. Okay. Uh, knock on wood that no family members get cancer or mm. whatever disease you're looking at. And, mm. um, but yeah. an update me. So it's, it's a process. It's, mm-hmm. it's not an event. Okay. Last question I want to ask you is about the future. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the history, about history and where we are now. Um, if you were to project uh, in our lifetimes, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, uh, what sort of, in, what sort of improvements um, do you see as as a scientist as being probabilistic or, or likely, um, given the the advances that we're making right now in in your field? So I think you know we can be pretty certain that so we have twenty thousand genes as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. We know something about four thousand when it comes to disease, and mm-hmm. probably many others will be linked to disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we can be pretty certain that we'll know a lot more about those genes. Mm-hmm. 
that people will study them. We will knock them out or mutate those in mice and see whether we get a syndrome in a mouse. Mm -hmm. We'll sequence people that have syndromes and we'll find new genes that are broken that Mm -hmm. are linked to that syndrome. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure we'll be able to understand more about the genes that we don't understand right now. We'll Mm -hmm. find more genes. Mm -hmm. We can be pretty sure about that. Other than that, not much... Not much to say because it hasn't happened yet, as Yogi Berra would say. So, yeah. yeah, fair enough. Well, well, Thea, thank you so much for for the time. It was a, it was a pleasure, and uh, keep up the good work. I, I appreciate all the all the work you do, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. Music